So when Jim first emailed me and uh, shared a story and I met with him, because I wanted to hear uh, a bit of what was going on, um, that something that really just resonated with me, that stuck with me, uh, got me thinking about silence. And I admit it, I, I hate it. I hate silence. Okay, it makes me uncomfortable. And I found that I have actually spent four and a half years engineering our worship services to eliminate silence. I actually try very hard. I'm not just talking about those times when the band doesn't quite know who's supposed to start the next song and we all start looking at each other. You know those awkward times. Uh, just, I really, I treat silence like an enemy I, because I don't like how it makes me feel. And, but I actually found it's not just limited to my role as a worship leader here. I actually try to avoid silence in my prayer life too. I try to fill out times, even if I'm praying audibly or if I'm just praying in my head, I keep talking. I keep going on and on and on, thinking that somehow if I say enough words, that I might magically say the right combination of words that's going to magically make God obligated to help me somehow and just however I want to be helped. So I've actually been challenged in trying to think about how can I incorporate more silence into my life, and it's not easy. Now, when I, I can just sit there, my phone's going to go off, it's going to buzz, it's going to vibrate, something's going to distract me. I have this thing on my wrist that actually, in case my phone doesn't alert me, my wrist will going to tell me as well, okay? I can just be sitting in these moments and I am always distracted. But when I've actually focused and tried to be disciplined and seeking silence, I start to hear and to feel God's voice. I sense him directing me and making me pay attention to good things in my life that I hadn't been paying attention to. And he also shows me where I need to allow him to move me. And I get this sense of peace and clarity that is what I was actually looking for all along. And most importantly, I realize I'm not the only one speaking. So for today's text, I chose a psalm that actually speaks to silence. But in two different ways, it speaks about the silence that we are to have before God, or sometimes that we just naturally have before God, but it also speaks to the silence that God sometimes has towards us. Now, uh, when you read through Psalms, you will actually find, I think about 71 times throughout the Psalms, you see this word, depending on your translation, it's usually italicized and it's called Selah. Now, remember that the Psalms were a hymn book of sorts that the Jewish people, but also the early Christians, they used the Psalms as, that was their liturgy. And there are even churches today that all they do is sing Psalms. That's the only thing that they will sing. And so, as a musician, if you look at the word Selah, that is meant to mean break or rest. It essentially means stop and shut up. You actually have to sit there, think about what you just read, think about what you just sang. It's actually something that, again, I, in my efforts to engineer us away from this, I'm always in a rush to get to the next thing. I never want to sit there and actually reflect on what did we just learn? What did we just sing? What did we just think about God? And so in our scriptures, we have this word Selah, and it is reminding us, hang on. Let that sit with you for a little bit. And so the structure of our service today has been inspired by this concept. Uh, 
and I deliberately even stripped our musical instruments uh, down today so that we could have less noise, so that we could have more room for God's word to fill our hearts and our minds. The text in Psalm 77, if you want to open a pew Bible, it is on page 488. The psalm today has three separate Selah moments. And we are going to stop today, and we're going to dwell on what God's word has to say to us. And after we take a moment and sit in silence, it's going to be uncomfortable, it's going to be strange. I'm actually not looking forward to it, but this is what uh, I felt God's uh, word leading us to today. We're going to take a moment to think about things, and then we're going to move on together and work through the next section. And so we start in Psalm 77, the first three verses. Gonna be up on the screen here. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Now, when I get stressed and when I get uh, troubled, I I see comfort. That's the first thing I go for. What's going to make me feel better? And I tried several different things. I tried to drown out my worries with entertainment. I will often lose myself in a project in my wood shop so that I could be distracted by that. But my all-time favorite comfort thing is food. Who's with me? Yes. Okay. I love eating my feelings because they are so delicious. Okay? But when I read this, I was actually challenged. How would my life be different? If when I had those times of stress, that I actually went to God instead? What if I sought God in these moments? Instead, I listened to the world where it just says, you know, hey, ignore your troubles. Hakuna Matata, all right? You know, don't worry, be happy. What if instead of all of that, I went to my Heavenly Father and I had a moment of honesty saying, God, I need help? And what if I refused to stop asking until I heard from Him and until I found Him? Now, we want to think that if we do this, that if we go to God with our trouble, that we're actually going to get an immediate response. He's going to intercede on our behalf, show us a way, or he's just going to deliver us out of our trouble right away. And we just go right back to being hunky-dory. Everything's fine. But that's usually not the case, right? And in verse 2, this line, my soul refuses to be comforted. I love the raw humanity on display here because you have these moments where you come to the end of yourself and it seems that nothing, absolutely nothing, is going to give you comfort. And it continues on in verse 3. When I remember God, I moan. And some translations are going to have that is that I am troubled. I am thinking about God, but I'm not comfortable. It's making me actually more upset and it's expressed in this moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Now, what I find interesting, and this is also what stuck out to me when Jim was sharing his story, is that when you're asking God for something, you didn't think you were talking to the air. You knew God was there. You knew God heard you, and yet you're not hearing anything back. The psalmist here, he does not question whether or not God hears him. In fact, he says in verse 1, I know God has heard me. So God, I did what I'm supposed to do. I went to you in my moment of need, and yet I got nothing back from you. I don't feel better. I'm still in the midst of trouble. I know you're there, so why aren't you helping me in the way that I need to be helped? And when we cry out to God and we know that we've been heard, 
It's supposed to bring us peace, but instead, it actually becomes more frustrating. We cry out to God, we're still in the middle of our trouble, and we're more frustrated, we're not less. It seems that it's making it worse. Because seeking God is not always easy. Because God does not always answer us immediately, and he doesn't always answer us in the way that we are expecting. But what we have on display here in this word, in this text that is in God's word to us, is expressing this frustration. I mean, here's the thing, is that I know my comfort food, at best, is going to give me about 30, 30 seconds, sometimes 30 minutes of relief, and then my troubles are going to come screaming right back. But you know what? I can count on that 30 seconds. I can count on that 30 minutes. So why can't I count on God to be as consistent as comfort food can be? The depth and complexity of this struggle is worthy of meditation. So when we come to our first Selah moment in this scripture, we're going to take a moment now to reflect and remember times in our lives when we didn't feel that God was answering our calls for help. Sometimes you're not going to receive the response that you thought you needed. Or you may be in the midst of a time of trouble right now. You need help, and maybe you haven't made a call out to him. So we're going to leave the verses on the screen. We're going to have a moment of silence to reflect on that. And after we've done that, I'm going to start playing, and we're going to sing another song together. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? So we have this moment of contemplation. You know, we're in trouble. We have sought God even though we're not finding him. He's not answering our calls, but then, you know, Eureka. We have this moment of relief, okay? Uh, he, he, he intercedes, you know, the clouds part. We feel the warmth of the sun. Everything goes back to peace, good vibes, Right? No, okay? That actually does not happen here. If anything, the anguish that's being expressed intensifies. It seems that it gets worse. It's, this is an experience, and what is described here is something that we can relate to. Those first words, you hold my eyelids open. We have these times when it does not matter how physically tired we are, sleep just will not come. And there's a reason that we associate darkness with depression and sadness. I read this week that sorrow is like a beast of prey. It makes its most vicious attacks at night. So when our soul is troubled, it doesn't matter how much we need to sleep, our eyes refuse to close. And actually what the psalmist writes here is that, God, you, you hold my eyelids open. It's as if he's saying, God, you are pushing my eyes open so I can stare out into the abyss into the abyss and just get even more worried and freaked out about the dreadful things that are out there. And it continues with, I cannot speak. 
So he's calling out to God. He's asking for an answer, and it's followed by an even deeper sense of trouble where his distress swallows his words. His pain is too big to be uttered out loud. And deep, intense pain, raw emotion is on display here. The future is hopeless. It's bleak. It's a wasteland. So where could I possibly look for hope? So he looks to the past. Verse 5, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. So instead of that hopeless, desolate wasteland of a future, he calls back to the times when God did show his favor and his faithfulness. God was ready to answer in those times, so why isn't he ready now? So he focuses on times when he was lifting up and singing songs of praise and thanksgiving, as opposed to right now when he's singing a song of of lament. He remembered the better times. He considered them deeply. And it says he searched his soul, I like the end of verse 6, diligently. He was in a moment of great trouble, but he was going to remain faithful, even if he didn't think God was being faithful at the time. So you go into the second part here in this list of rapid-fire questions where it is wondered out out loud, is this season of distress going to last forever? Will the Lord spurn forever? Will he never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Is he angry? Is he no longer going to be compassionate? Notice that these are questions. He's not directing them at God like Job often did. No, he's actually arguing with himself in the text here. He's looked upon his own experience with God And in the middle of this darkness, he has been led to question these things. But these questions, none of them are sinful. Now, a lot of times people think that it's wrong to to ask God questions or to somehow think that you're really wanting to wonder. I promise you, God can take it, okay? He can handle your questions, your doubts, your fears. And he is actually killing one question with another. He's fighting fire with fire. Each one of these questions is striking right at the heart of unbelief. God hasn't failed me yet. Is he really going to start now? I see a trend among Christians today that I find very disturbing. And this trend I see is that we don't like to be challenged. We're afraid to be challenged. And so, as a way of trying to avoid being challenged, we fill our ears only with content that we want to hear. We read books that tell us things that we already knew, and we just create this echo chamber where I never have to be challenged about what I believe. And it's all too easy these days to insulate yourselves from ever having to question what you believe and to only allow allow yourself to see the things that tell you that You've got this life thing, and you really, you've got this God thing figured out, all right? And I'm not saying that we should go out and openly be seeking to be challenged by things, uh, but if we were to follow Peter's direction in 1 Peter chapter 3, we are always to be ready and able to give a respectful and reasoned defense for the hope that we have in Christ. And I'm going to tell you right now, if your, re- if your defense is, well, my pastor says so, the world's not going to listen to you. Popular culture is going to tell you that your happiness and your satisfaction is all that really matters. And God's word tells us differently. It says that we were created for a purpose. And you were created for that purpose of bringing your God glory. 
And what's beautiful about this is that when we center our lives around this, when we seek to glorify God, we actually find ourselves. God's word tells us who we really are, and almost always, we're not who we thought we were. And if your walk with God does not cause you to feel stretched beyond your comfort zone, then you need to really be examining if you're walking with God at all. We read here in this psalm, questioning his entire life, his entire walk with God to date, and God's walk with his people. If we would become trained in this, if we'd be able to challenge ourselves to cross-examine our own unbelief, then we would open ourselves up to not only finding comfort in God's faithful love for us, we would also be better equipped to share the defense, to share the hope that we have with outsiders so that they could find their true purpose as well. So will we never again see the favor of God, the mercy of God? Does God still keep his promises? If you are a believer in God and you've never had to ask these type of questions of God, be very grateful. But the good news today is that if you ever had to ask questions like this, be very thankful the Bible's actually asked them before you. Take heart in knowing that God can answer your questions. He can take them. He can help you find a way through, even when it seems like he isn't acting on your behalf. Talk to someone who's been there before and see if God let them down in the end. I like this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He writes, It is always a comfort when you can see the footprints of another man in the mire and in the slough. For if that man pass through unharmed, so may you. For his God shall also be your helper. So we come to our next Selah. The, the psalmist just spoke many things that a lot of believers feel, but rarely feel safe to speak about. Most of us won't risk this type of honesty. This open and honest anguish before God is worthy of contemplation. So again, we are going to leave these verses on the screen, and after a moment of contemplation, we'll sing together. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. The psalmist has been expressing this gap, this chasm between what he believes and what he feels. And so he calls to his memory all these years that he has spent walking with God. Have they meant nothing? He says, no. He calls to the years of the right hand, and that's also known as the hand of God's power. He has seen God's power at work before. He has seen God's deliverance. He knows that God is able, even though it's hard for him to stay patient in this moment of anguish. And we know that God is quite often the God 
of the last second rescues. Verse 11, I remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. And so I see three things for us to do in moments of trouble. Remember God's works in the past. How has he brought you through trouble before? And second, to meditate on these works. Consider what they have to teach us today. And finally, talk about these things with others. There's a reason God calls us. He never called us to actually walk this life of faith alone. When you share your life with another believer, they can help you find God even when he's hardest to see. And in verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And so we move, to, move away from just a concept of a God who, who we think about, we think he does great things. No, we actually start talking about more specific things that God has done. So when this psalm was written, uh, these verses are talking about redeeming the children of Jacob and Joseph, and it's referring to God's rescue of Israel from the bonds of slavery in Egypt. And today... After the cross and after Jesus, we have, a different, we have a different perspective on what redemption looks like. So we're coming into our time of service when we will remember God and what we call the Lord's Supper. The gentlemen are going to be standing up now and uh, preparing to serve us the Lord's Supper. And in my studies recently, I kept coming to this thought, we always like to stuff God into a, into a little box of our own creation, We try to understand God on our terms instead of his. And I see this in the Old Testament. It's not just unique to us. Uh, Israel goes to God, God, we want a king. Well, wait, I thought I was your king. Well, yeah, but we want a human king. And God says, that's a bad idea. Okay, if you have a human king, then he's going to tax you so that he can build up wealth for himself. He's going to take your young men and uh, they're going to fight in his army. Okay, but we still want a king. God says, all right. So Saul comes along and what happens? exactly what God says would happen. And after Saul, you have David. He was mostly a good king, and we know that he loves God. That's written several times in Scripture. He wrote a lot of the Psalms that we have, and God, and David says, he doesn't quite get it either. He says, God, I want to build you a temple. I want you to have a temple, God. And God's looking at him and saying, dude, okay, you realize that I said a word and everything came to be. What sort of house are you going to build for me, man? I mean, really, what are you going to do for me? And David says, well, yeah, God, you should really have a temple, though. Why? Well, other nations, they have temples for their gods, and how will they know that our God can beat up their gods unless he has a better temple, okay? And I I know it wasn't quite like that, but still, all right. (laughs) It's childish. I find it no better than uh, my nine-year-old having these ideas. And I've listened to conversations uh, Orthodox uh, Jews today, they they discuss their expectations of the Messiah, someone who they think is still coming. And a lot of Jews today are still waiting for a political figure, someone who's going to come forth and they're going to take the leadership of Israel, restore Israel to a place of covenant faithfulness with God. And in turn, God is going to make Israel into the greatest world power once again. And And they're still waiting for this. And the disciples didn't get it either. They had Jesus. They had the Son of God in their midst, talking with them, living with them every day for three years. And near the end, they were still asking Jesus, hey, are you going to restore Israel now? 
all right, these Romans are really bad guys. Could you go ahead and, you know, beat them up for us? And I think God's up there just going, you guys just don't get it. It is too small a thing for my son to conquer the governments of this world. I could do that anytime I want. But your problem isn't in your circumstances. Your problem is your sin that is killing you. You are in a prison that you have built around yourself for years and you don't even realize it. I have come so that I could set you free from your true oppressor, from your real problem. But conquering this problem isn't accomplished by might or power. No, the coronation of Jesus as king came in the form of a cross. We remember these symbols now. The redemption that is available to us who can now be called the children of Jacob and Joseph because of the work of Jesus. We have the bread that represents the body of Jesus broken for us. The cup that represents Jesus' blood that was spilled for us. And we take this now to not only remember his sacrifice, but also to celebrate, to proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again, to remember that our Jesus is at the right hand of God, the hand of God's power, and he is reigning over the earth now. So far, we've been talking about the importance of remembering God's past deeds. So we're going to pause again in this text to remember the love that he has shown us on the cross as our gentlemen come forth and serve communion, and we will share that together. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron." Now, for those of us who grew up in the church, and uh, if you didn't, you've had plenty of exposure to flannel graph the last couple of weeks, but uh, it's easy for us to recognize this story and what was just read as a recounting of the story of God parting the waters of the Red Sea so that the people of Israel, they were leaving Egypt, being rescued from slavery, and God parted the Red Sea so that they could pass to the other side safely. But there's Another component to the biblical use of bodies of water that I came across in my study, and you know, it made me happy, so I'm excited to share this with you now. Throughout the Bible, bodies of water are often described or used as a negative symbol. They're almost always a barrier to God's blessings. Just like the Red Sea, it was going to stop the Israelites from escaping. We have other instances where a body of water was a problem. In Joshua chapter 3, God had to stop the Jordan River so that the Israelites could enter the promised land. And we also read this imagery, Isaiah 57, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. Psalm 74, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. Now that just sounds cool, all right? Uh, Isaiah 51, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? 
And then in the New Testament, actually in Revelation chapter 21, we catch a glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth. And we read this. Uh, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And scholars think that this mention of the sea being no more was meant to give us a hint. Now, I know this would be torture for those of us who love the sea or Lake Michigan, okay, all right, Uh, because for those of us who love the ocean or the beach, the sea and the water represents beauty, it represents recreation, and it seems strange if not wrong to contemplate a new earth without any sea. But to the audience of this day, to a Jewish person in Jesus' day, this was a different matter. In Jewish literature, the sea was often used as a symbol for that which was ominous, sinister, and threatening. It was trouble. An example of this is found earlier in the book of Revelation when we have the beast coming forward, the enemy of God's people. It came from what? It came from the sea. And we see hints of this as well in Jesus' actions. One of my favorite stories about Jesus, in Mark chapter 4, a storm hits the boats that Jesus and the disciples, the boat that they were traveling in, and the disciples were being overcome by the storm, and in the middle of, you know, trying to not die, uh, they went down to Jesus. He was taking a nap down below. He wasn't sweating anything. And they woke Jesus up. Yes, the storm didn't wake him up, but the disciples did. And, uh, and he gets up, he walks out and goes to the water, says, quiet, be still, and instantly, smooth as glass, everything was just fine. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, why are you afraid? And the disciples, when they're describing this story, they're recounting it later. They said, yeah, we were afraid. But then when they saw what Jesus did, they were terrified Because the one in the boat was more powerful than the storm, and they couldn't wrap their minds around that. Control over bodies of water was no small thing, and it's it's important that we understand the symbolism when we come back into the psalm here, because this line really stuck with me. It says, God, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Because that tells me that God's way is not always just when we're in the midst of a tough time, when we're in the storm, when we're in the middle of the sea, he's not just going to just pluck us out and put us on dry ground. We read here that his way is through the waters, through the chaos and the uncertainty. His way is through the trouble, not just to drop out of it. So why should we trust God? It's because he has never asked us to do something that he himself hasn't already done. This is what makes following Jesus different than any other world religion. Jesus walked this earth. He lived a human life. He endured the same temptations and the troubles that we have had. And if you are dealing with trouble today, I want you to know that Jesus endured the same and worse. And he lived a life of faith in the one that he knew was going to bring him through the waters through the chaos, even though he knew that that meant he was going to face death. He trusted that God was going to bring him through that too. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. God raised him from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we read here that like a flock of sheep, God is ready to guide us to follow this same path through. 
But not once in Scripture are we promised that this path is going to be easy. In fact, we're promised the opposite. The path is narrow, it is hard, and it's going to result in losing almost everything that we used to think was important. But we put it all aside because we trust in the one who walked before us. He never promises us safety and comfort, but the promise is this, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Take heart, I have overcome the world, and I can help you overcome this too. And notice what's missing from this psalm. What don't we get? Now, nearly, we don't get the Hollywood ending. We don't know what happened. We don't know what the resolution was to his trouble. Was he delivered immediately after writing the psalm? Did he have to just wait a little longer? Or did he die? We don't know. The life of faith is not one that always has a happy ending as the way the world would have us expect. But the reason for that is because Death is not the end for us because the one we follow is the one who cannot and will not be stopped by death. So as we head to a conclusion today, I want to share an encouragement with you, the hope that we can have with Jesus. You may not be able to see it now, but victory is coming. The day is coming when he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death, pain, sorrow, grief will be no more. He will make all things new. We may not see his victory this side of death, but those who live their lives by faith will see it. And I want to end with these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's stand together and sing. Mm-hmm.